Alright, episode 8 of my podcast. This week will be a very special uh, episode because I will be trying a different format. Um, over the past couple of weeks, I have been getting several DMs over Instagram where a number of people would wish to hear the English version of me. One of them is Shishi, my Chinese roommate that I uh, brought together during the podcast about Chinese hygiene and a couple of other colleagues as well. So I guess there's no harm in making an English version. Uh, it's just that, as I mentioned in episode 1, I've always tried to uh, share stories in, in Bahasa because I think it's much more intimate and I really want to tap into uh, listeners from Indonesia, those who are in the country or even outside the country, especially in the country, those who are left out from the whole diaspora of you know studying and working overseas. Uh, but anyway, the timing was just also right because uh, this time I will be bringing a friend that is not only well spoken in English, he's also someone who has been uh, very close to me. We literally spent close to three years living under the same roof, no homo, but yeah, I, uh, I can say he's a very good friend of mine. We haven't spoken in a while, so I guess this is also part of the catching up. Why don't you introduce us for a bit, tell us who you are, what you like, what you dislike, anything really. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Billion. As Andrea said, I was his former roommate. And I'm a biotechnologist, biologist by trade. Mm-hmm. However, I also moonlight as a game designer. How's life in Indo? Do you like it? Honestly, kind of miss China and or, uh, and or Liverpool, but it's alright. Um, at the very least, you know, like, I have safety net here, so that's not too bad. Oh yeah, you, so you also spent some years in the UK, right? So how was it? Was it just It's literally a year, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. If you were to choose between UK, China, and Indo, what would you choose? Yeah, it's kind of a difficult question. Like, from a cultural acclimata- uh, acclimation sort of standpoint, I think I fit best in the UK, but uh, at least that's, that's where I felt I had like the most amount of uh, connection at least. Although, I might be biased by the fact that um, over here at least, I live under my parents and you know how traditional parents are. So. <laughs> Alright. And so, yeah. is it just... No offense to them, they are great parents, but yeah. I guess you were uh, you were missing the times when you were in China or the UK where you can just be slightly freer in a sense. So uh, is it something in that you way, yeah. right? Is there any like cultural adaptation that you have to readapt when you go back? You know, I actually like developed a taste for going out and randomly exploring places. I can't really do that here, mostly because I already know the places. I don't know, I just feel like it's kind of risky to explore too far and over Alaska over where currently where I'm living. So but oh at least I think there's 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 a bit of bias going on as well as I said, because with Suto and um, Liverpool, those are completely new places. Nothing feels dangerous, it all feels exciting and new. What do you usually do in your spare time? A bunch of things really. Well obviously I play video games. I mean who doesn't at this time? Like <laughs> you, you pick a random guy off the street and they're like you play vid games and they'll be like yes on my phone at the very least you know but yeah a good chunk of it is that the other chunk of it is as i said um game design which is i would say my primary hobby well i guess if you ask me for the past couple of months i would be excluded from those strangers that you snatch on the street because i haven't been gaming for a long time man uh, it's i kind of miss that stuff uh, hmm? no no mobile games even 
like the occasional clash of clan or something. I, I wanted to play some more 8-ball pool, but then my account got locked because uh, I accessed uh, my FB from many servers, you know, because I use Astral, right? And then uh, my activities got suspicious. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, wow. I, I was banned. <laughs> nothing, nothing of worth was lost. <laughs> uh, except from the hours that I've put in into the game and the levels and stuff, but no, not really. It's, it's not It's not a very hardcore game, it's just very casual that I, I play usually on MLT. Oh no, no, I was, I was actually referring to the Facebook account. Ah <laughs> uh, no, nobody uses Facebook anymore. <laughs> uh, you did mention uh, you like to game a lot during your spare time. Does this apply to, you know, irrespective of which country you are in? If you take an average of my life currently, that might not actually be true. But taking like half of my recent like existence upon this on this planet, um, <laughs> I would say yeah. Like it's kind of consistent. It's somewhat consistent. I started off like high schoolish. Prior to that, um, I was mostly train simulators. Which don't get me wrong, are still super fun, and I still really like trains. But yeah. Wow, so, so you were actually very late into the gaming um, life. Very, actually. Yeah, because I started actually, when very. I was in fourth grade, so you're at least five years apart. Wow. That's... Yeah, it's really ironic when you think about it, because for long, I, I've seen a lot of people play Mario and uh, the 1.6 version of Counter-Strike, or even older, and I've always felt like pointed up my nose at all of that. It's like superiority complex that I've got. I've got like a weird superiority complex over them, basically, for the longest time. So you just want to go off mainstream, huh? Essentially. I'm not sure if that's because I just really don't like the mainstream or just because oh i don't like what the cool people like or i genuinely really like trains during the time i don't know so when you say train simulators are what kind i would say microsoft's train simulator would be the definitive like example of a train simulator and in fact that's actually the, the one that i played my uncle um, was called like flight simulator as well and he also got train simulator because he thought that I would enjoy it as I was a little train-obsessed boy, so yeah. It's basically a game as well, no? The fact that you are trying to um, construct rail tracks, I guess, because I also played, no. uh, what do you call it, Jet Coaster similar, uh, not Jet Coaster, uh, what was oh, it? Oh yeah, it's not that, it's not that. Roller Coaster Simulator and Rail oh, yeah. Tycoon Simulator. Roller These Coaster are, was the word, um, yeah. Builder games park builder or whatever games mm -hmm. but the point is this one actually allows you to play as the engineer of a train i.e you take control of a train and run schedules and whatnot basically you're living the life of a train engineer that's new i've never heard yes. of that kind of um software or game you should go to steam a little often no i i'm not into the gaming industry <laughs> for a long time now it means gaming scene I guess it's an industry now, especially if you take into account esports, it's getting so big right now. Oh yeah, it's but literally... if you're playing, it's still just the scene, the industry itself, at least based on what actual people whose jobs are video game related, the industry refers to the uh, the production of the games, whereas the scene refers to the playing and the, the player, the parts on the consumer side. Gotcha, so gotcha. Just differentiate a little bit, yeah. What do you think of the whole scene and industry? The scene itself, I would say it's actually booming a lot. Uh -huh. Like, sure, there are PC peeps who really don't like consoles and mobiles, and there are console people who look down on mobiles and despise PC people for being elitists. But I'd say everyone plays them. So, in a way, like, 
there's a lot of solidarity for like for the for the medium, and I think it has pretty good future at least with regards to keeping getting people engaged together. I think mobile gaming will, is the next big thing after PC because just by the fact it's much more mobile, um, you know, as the name suggests. Yeah, I would say mobile would probably be the, the number one type of gaming. Yeah. It probably already is. At least that's my opinion. Yeah. I might be wrong. And what fascinates me is that uh, it's not necessarily the technology that uh, transitions. Because I clearly remembered when FPS mm-hmm. games came into mobile, I was very hesitant to play. I uh-huh. thought it was very uncomfortable, you know, to aim and stuff like that. But then over the past mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. people just have grown accustomed to it. Like we, they actually make a mobile PUBG tournament that was otherwise impossible uh-huh. if you would held it five years ago. It's it's just not the uh-huh. norm yet, you know, to to wiggle your thumb around trying to shoot people with. <laughs> your mobile games that's not a thing even even like mobile legends were thought to be very like trash when it first came out people was like how do you play dota uh, with your fingers <laughs> but it turns out that people get used to it so we evolve yeah. it like i actually was in that same crowd like three years ago i think mm-hmm. i was saying like uh, a lot of people complain about how a certain game looked like it's for mobile even though the controls and the graphs they say they're complaining the graphics suck so because they're, they're like oh it's it's gotta be for mobile oh it's so ugly <laughs> the controls however are insane and there's so many things going on like at the same time so i was like there's no way it's gonna be for mobile like there are so many things going on here it's impossible for it to get every get a handle on everything using just a t- just a couple of fingers on a touchpad fast forward to this year there is now a mobile version of that game. Darn. <laughs> and I guess if you look at it from a different lens, we are becoming yeah. more consumer extorted. Like back in the days, we tried to save money uh-huh. to buy high-end laptops. Uh-huh. And now we want both sides of the world. We want high-end laptops and we want high-end mobiles. It's just getting more and more about high-tech, high-tech and you know how capable our devices are to run these uh, high-maintenance games. I mean, not necessarily. I get a phone not based on its ability to run games, and mostly with like, as long as it doesn't stutter too much, we good. Okay, so when you did mention also about the game deafing, I like to call it game deafing just because it's much shorter. How did it start? Like, uh, what drove you and did you learn it yourself or you joined a special course online? Uh, I wanted to write game development itself is very nebulous. Like, there are more than just one, like, position for that. You say game developer. That person could have like many different responsibilities. Like that game developer might be a level designer. The guy could be a um, asset designer, gameplay designer, concept artist could be a composer. There's a lot of categories going into game development slash game design. It's not exactly one thing. My specifications would be um, level designer as well as asset designer, along with occasionally a bit of sound mixing. Okay. Occasionally. Can you extrapolate more like, on that? Like, yeah. what what is what does an asset designer do? What does a level designer do? Okay, so a level designer takes care of the front end of the game. In a way, the the part that the player interfaces, the world you walk around in, how certain how you interact with the world in a way as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's um and the on the other hand, a asset designer creates the assets that the level designer will use. Um, you know, to decorate and or make the world alive or even um, populate it. So 
those two are actually fairly interlinked if you look at all older games. Um, I started off with a fairly old game engine, which is why I my 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 strongest skills are in these two like categories because they used to be basically the same category. Nowadays, though, you have asset designers, have environment designers, you have texture designers, you have character modelers, you have environment prop modelers, you have particle effect designers as well. Level designers are basically like depreciated at this point. Although I still like to use the term because a lot of people who grew up with like older systems, at least, they can do all the things, at least a little bit of each one, in order to make a proper level. So I still kind of. The, the term level designer has sentimental value to me, yeah, therefore I'm still using it, even though industry-wide it's kind of depreciated. <laughs> we just found out some stuff that I couldn't make sense of, but I would just take it that you were talking about the in-game processes that you need to accumulate, or let's say you stack over each other in order for the game to run smoothly. So basically, level designing is the flow of the game when a person enters the world, the visual world, and assets are like yes, what yes. the person see, like if they see a house, if they see like a street light and whatnot, right? You are correct. And when when I was your roommate, I saw you uh, created one, you know, a whole arena because uh, I remember you were designing a game that was uh, that had a gameplay similar to that of a Left 4 Dead. So you were like a swamp. With well, zombies. A lot yeah, so you, it, it was like mainly survival context based. So, like, do you visualize that on your own, or do you have like a couple of themes where you discuss first? I've always been curious. In that particular case, I actually made that like for the most part, I was independent. This is probably not normal for like most teams, but in this case, at least since. As I said, this is an older engine, and being a quote-unquote level designer mm -hmm. means uh, you have to have a handle on many other things. So working together with other people tend to be a little more difficult since you have to communicate a whole lot more. So it's generally a lot more practical for you to work on your own and have like all the abilities that require it anyway. It was not easy getting all the abilities, but yeah. Like being, being a level designer is more like a project manager where you just have to consolidate all everybody's work into one single game world. <laughs> well, a lead level designer is that. As a solo level designer for the Source Engine, I do all the shit, all the stuff. But like, how do you come up with the with the concept though? I mean, like, I've always been an avid enthusiast of game as well, so I understand uh -huh. how intricate a story can be and how branched out each uh, player's choices are. But I just cannot understand how a single person could think of all these different scenarios. I think it's just completely bonkers. <laughs> I'll have to add though, like, this game is called No More Room in Hell if anyone's interested, but the way the game works is that every level is disparate. Every level is its own story. So it's basically the anthology series and multiple different, mostly unrelated stories in each one. So you have a lot of freedom to make use of the resources of the universe that have already been written mm -hmm. and apply them onto a, a single novel of your own. Usually though, I'm gonna take the example of Let's say, let's just use the last level I got, that I made for the game. It's a map based on bits and pieces of the old town at Suzhou. And oh. the inspiration for that basically just by from me walking around Suzhou and like, this would make a really great map. I didn't immediately come to that, but eventually it was. Previously, it was going to be our dorm. Mm -hmm. This is information that I, I've only shared with very few people, so 
I'm getting this is the first time you're getting a um, exclusive of my wow. of the backstory behind Adam Osuto by the way. <laughs> if you're okay with that. <laughs> But yeah, so basically to start off though, I it was initially going to be MBA. It's going to be our dorm, like that whole um, apartment complex. It has a lot of little corners and whatnot, mm-hmm. and I thought it would be a really great map for um, place a story where mm-hmm. a bunch of survivors are holding up inside the dormitory. So you see, you've been there. You remember how that is. That that place is pretty massive, and there's a lot of like base for like refugees and whatnot. So I thought it makes good sense for like a band of survivors to like pull up at least in the MBA building itself. That was going to be the focal point of the whole thing. However, eventually I realized that the actual layout is not conducive to how the actual game engine handles optimization. So the map would have would start running like really badly if I didn't that, do that anyway. And I couldn't get like all the um, Portions right either, so I kind of scrapped it after. Mm-hmm. Um, although the idea of having a map set in China with like Chinese aesthetic really like borrowed into my mind, so I did want to like make something from stuff that I saw in real life in Suzhou. Anyway, I actually recycled bits and pieces from another map I was going to make that I also cancelled due to the gameplay loop being incredibly repetitive and fetch questy. So I thought this isn't going to work. But this general idea of the layouts, how how the layouts work, basically like a sort of maze that randomizes itself, that got recycled back into like this final version of Suzhou. You know, like what always amazes me with what? game developers like you and your other mm-hmm. teams are, is that you guys are able to either create nothing. Sorry, either something out of nothing, or you can replicate uh-huh. something into another thing, which I find it incredibly powerful. It's like you are god, your of your own world, and the fact that you're able to construct those. Uh, I don't think I have the spatial. Yeah, spatial in the three D space. Spatial, yeah. yes. I don't think I have the spatial or you call it 3D space capacity to be able to visualize those and turn it into reality. Well, virtual reality, I suppose. How did you learn about it? Like, is it something that's like a natural talent, or is it something that you, with an effort, um, learning from tutorials or you know other sources? Um, before that, I want to say like I'm flattered that you think so. <laughs> I think I think every guy who can make a game is like that. Um, not necessarily. I've met people who are like asset designers and programmers who can't do the level design stuff. They don't have the, as you said, spatial capability or at least the mindset for that. But they're really good at doing programming and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Ironically, programming is something that I literally cannot do right now. Like for some reason, it doesn't click with me. Uh-huh. I don't have the right mind for programming, it seems. But as for your question regarding how did I start? Basically, back to the train simulator. Actually, not Microsoft's train simulator, different train simulator, which I liked more. Mm-hmm. Specifically, because it came with a surveyor mode. Okay. What it does essentially is allow you to create your own lines, your own routes, give it your own flair. Like they have different maps, mm-hmm. um, routes. There you go. They have different routes already. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, I wish this route could have gone elsewhere. I wonder what happens if, put, if there's a tunnel over there. And they allowed me to mess around with their files like that. Wow. So that was my very, very first world of game design. I made some stuff. I never finished anything. Uh, some of them are very surreal. I have no idea what I, what I was on during that time, but yeah. So from that, I eventually went on and um, discovered the Source Engine. I think that was a portal giveaway in 2009 or something. And from there, it kind of blossomed. Um, I started experimenting bit by bit, and I thought, holy hell, this is cool. 
Uh, it helps that I've played games on the Source Engine as well, and most of those games are pretty uh, immersive experiences that I thought I wanted to emulate. And in addition, I've played modifications of the engine from by other people, and those inspire me a whole lot as well. I was thinking, these guys, they're not getting paid, they're not they are not professionals, they're just peeps with like, a lot of time on their hands apparently, and uh, what's it called? good art design, and they made stuff like this which I enjoy immensely. What can I do with this? Can I can I join these guys? Can I make this stuff too? And yeah, I eventually put in a lot more effort and um, at some point I released my first map, which was for Portal 2. Before that, though, I have to add the first, the very, very, very first thing that I tried when I got the um, SDK or Software Development Kit. It's trying to make a working train. That's how much I like trains. <laughs> Bloody hell. As I said also earlier, I tried playing the yeah. roller coaster simulator, but I just uh -huh. can't bring myself to imagine uh, or to uh -huh. realize my imagination uh -huh. into something that uh, that people can play and enjoy. So every time I play a game, I never judge, even though you know sometimes the game is very crappy, but I know the kind of effort that goes behind it uh, with all the storytelling, composing, and uh -huh. all, all those uh -huh stuff that you just uh, talked uh -huh. about. As a lead level designer, when you start to put on all those separate work that other people have done in terms of the granular projects as, as in like you know you you mix the songs and then you give it uh, the those people will give it to you right and then you just have to sync it with the whole world. Do you tend to figure out the mistakes after the end product was finished or you just start to see it midway? First off, I want to add, like, while that is how it's supposed to be done, I have mostly been solo, so in a way, I, I've done all the extra things, so. Yeah. It's only now, in my current project, that I'm properly working in a team, as opposed to, like, doing my own thing all by myself. Do you tend to spot mistakes in the middle uh, when you are working with the game, or just after the end product was realized? This is what playtesting is for. I'm gonna take um, Suso again as my example. When I'm designing, I don't design like, oh my god, this is gonna be done like this immediately. No. For the longest time, I have pictures, but there's no way to show pictures. But so, for the longest time, Suzo was basically just orange boxes. So, you start with like, you start with drafts, just like anything, just like an essay, just like a report. You get that draft as close as possible to the final, and you keep on hammering that draft until it feels like it's good. Even then, sometimes you've find more problems afterwards. This is why you play test. Once I got a draft done, I asked people like, hey guys, can you have a go at this? See what happens. And a few times I actually did like get issues. I was recycling ideas from the last ones. And some of those ideas I have to actually shelf again because they couldn't work properly. On the other hand, I put some very like out there ideas that that's completely like out of the blue and nobody apparently a lot of people really like those. And they worked just fine. They were, they were experimental ideas and ideas that are not standard within the normal room and health toolkit. Mm -hmm. And people love those. And playtesting revealed that to me. I thought they were cool. I didn't know if like, people received them well. Playtesting said, yeah, we like this a lot. And then there are bits that are like, dude, why did you do this? This is stupid. Did you realize that you can't escape if you light the place on fire? I'm like, <laughs> oh no. So yeah, like you do, you do get it like now and then. But using proper design iterations, it's possible to avoid the biggest issues from the start. It's best for you to actually get a thing working first, test it the hell out, and then reiterate on that, and then test it again until you get the final. 
Once you do get the final, occasionally you get issues, however, and it might be a little too late to change them at that point. However, you can try to make them as painless as possible. It's really funny when you bring up playtesting because what comes to my mind right away was the fact that, you know, I also edit my podcast, right? Uh, okay, this might not be yeah, a very apple to apple comparison, but every time I, before I publish it outside, I will yes. make some cuts here and there, especially for the noises, uh, for the blips and for the some sentence fillers that's better omitted uh. just to make the overall audio clean. And and it <laughs> took me sometimes to to have to listen to my podcast at least twice. Uh, so if you can imagine if an hour podcast took yeah. me around two hours to proofread or proof listen uh, in the sense. So when you're creating a game, how long do you actually play test that stuff? Because it's a you continuous know, effort, right? I've considerably lost count yeah. how much of my life I've spent playtesting <laughs> my own stuff. So I can't imagine, you know, a game that is a very full-blown project could take like weeks or even months or perhaps years, you know, depending on the scale. Yeah, especially if you're a single person, that's mad. But most teams are like 10-ish people, so it's not too bad, but... Mm. What is it on average for you? Have you lost count entirely? <laughs> I have lost count entirely, I'll be honest. It's kind of mad. I've also playtested for other people, so that adds to the confusion. Okay, let's put it this way. When did you first start uh, creating um, No More Room in Hell? 2012. Early 2012. I think I showed you my very first map there. Yep, months. I did, yeah. And it's still an ongoing thing until now, right? Well, No More Room in Hell 1 is complete. We're now doing basically shining polish. I'm getting all the little bugs ironed out. There is another team that's working on a sequel on a different newer engine. The first one was completed 2014, 2015, I think. Right, so it's a two to three years effort of polishing and continuous editing and playtesting. Well, that's not exactly like true, however. I made three maps in that time. Well, four. So like, I think each one on, on average took, took around 11 months-ish. Uh, although the first one, I was done in a month. It was literally just a month's effort. It was also kind of crap as a result. But yeah, the rest of them have 6 to 12-ish months in between. Suzo took the longest. And yeah, um, for the most part, it takes about a year in this case. But that's also assuming I adhere to a, a weekly schedule of sorts. Wow. When you first produce your result, right, um, let's say with the normal uh, in uh, hell, were your parents aware uh, of it? I would say my parents were kind of indifferent for the most part. That is until I asked my dad to voice the tugboat pilot. To become the voice artist yeah. of the character? Like, how did he first react? I mean, he was like, oh cool, that's interesting. So, like for me personally, I play game just for fun. It crossed my Damn. mind in in the earlier stage of my life, you know, the fact that I like yes. to play games mean I have to create a game, but that turns out to be a total bullcrap. So, um, considering that you develop games for a whole majority of your life, did you receive any kind of um, reprimand from your parents, you know, for wasting your time, wasting your youth when you can do something else more productive, you know, and blah blah blah. <laughs> My parents were very apprehensive about computers from the very start. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were also always telling my uncle that like he shouldn't be teaching us uh, letting me spend too much time on the computer because it rots your brain, breaks your eye, vision. So they were always apprehensive. Whenever I'm working on a computer on Microsoft Word or Excel or doing some database stuff, they're always like, I'm like, come on, I'm not playing, I'm doing assignments here. So, yeah. <laughs> Although occasionally I occasionally I do play like for five, six hours straight though, so fair enough, woman. Fair enough. 
I get that look a lot because like um, back in my home, I do not have a dedicated computer room. So usually I play in the open and every time my dad went up, he can only see the back of my computer and he will see me with a very particular gaze. What and you're particularly doing on the screen, right? I know, right? It's like every time he sees me, he just know that I'm playing when in fact I might be doing other, other times. But to be fair, I did. Uh, I was playing like 80% of the time. So, well, he did me justice. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's understandable that um, they would actually like tell us off, but at the same time, like as time goes by, it's it's more imp- more and more imperative that you develop like computer literacy and spend a good bunch of it, a good chunk of your time on the computer. So it's it get it gets less and less reasonable for them to like suspect that we're playing something, even though fair enough, we sometimes are, well, maybe we mostly are, but yeah. But the bigger question here, I think, is. Do you, at any point of your life, regret for playing or spending too much time in front of the computer? Especially now yeah, that yes. you have proven yourself capable of creating your own map and game. And I also learned that you make money out of it, right? So let's talk a little bit about the making money. It's the good stuff, right? I'll have to like add a disclaimer first. I've never made a game of my own. Right. I've only made like levels and assets on their own. Like they're not technically quote unquote games. Yeah, but they're the crux of the game, right? So without it, there's no gameplay. So you could say that that's, ba- that's you're basically making a core, the, the core system. I agree, but anyway, you were saying. Yeah, so uh, you did make some cash out of it, right? How did it start? Like, is it something that you have always known that you can get remunerated out of developing some game? Or was it just, um, what do you call it, a serendipity where that people just um, stumbled over your work and then just say, hey, I really like your stuff, can I just give you some donation? It's actually both. When I started, I know that this is it's possible to be, uh, I suppose, capitalize on the skill. Mm-hmm. But I was never like confident enough in like, attempting to do anything with the sword. I never thought I was actually good enough for anything. Plus, when I was actually good with level designing for Source, that engine is just died. Well, I guess, yeah, everybody starts off a hobby, right? It always starts off as a hobby and then you just make money along the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But, like, to start off, though, I know it's possible, but I didn't think of it in that way at all because I have, like, uni and stuff to think about anyway, and I was thinking, I want to be a scientist. And as for your latter part, yeah, that also happened. In fact, the first time I made money out of it was a friend, a friend of my, a good friend of mine who I met from the in Hell. He was part of the playtesting team, and he had some his own projects going on. He was like, Hey, I've seen you model stuff. I have a request for you. Can you make me these things? And I'm like, yeah, I can make those. It's easy. And I made them, made it for him. And he's like, dude, don't freak out. But this is some good stuff. I'm gonna pay you for it. I'm like, okay. But internally, I was like, <laughs> uh-huh. oh yeah. Do you make a lot of cash out of it? Like, uh, is it just decent no. enough? Or maybe you're not at the stage of making a lot of money yet. But do you see a lot of potential if you spend? full time on it like you are very dedicated on creating and you know becoming a game dev. well yeah yeah actually this is regarding 3d modeling and 2d asset material creation anyway uh, i think i'm actually good enough now to actually like have proper commissions asked for me unless it's organic or character based i can't do those yet yet i'm trying to learn however if you ask me to make like a random prop like say tall chair for example or an oven i'm like i can't do that give me a week so basically those things, if you want me to make a building, I can do that too because those are boxes basically. 
to you to us know that's like <laughs> yeah like that's actually a thing due to like all this game design stuff i look at a building like you look at a building and go oh wow look at the aesthetic me i look at the building like i can break this down in six pieces and reconstruct it in Alaska in a virtual world that's the paradigm you get after working with this concept for such a long time though very interesting so if we go back to the initial question now that you've uh, been able to get something that is both tangible yeah, yeah. and rewarding for yourself what do your parents now say about it so basically the guy who like proposed to me in like late 2017 while I was in Liverpool and my mom's like visiting as well and I told her like hey mom i got like 100 bucks for working out 100 what 100 USD and then she's like what and I think her perception over me doing all the stuff suddenly shifted to a positive. After that point, they're really open to it now. Like they're, they're a lot more open to it. They're like, "What's it called?" If it's included, he's like, "He's probably creating, designing something." And he can. And whenever a guest come around, they like they also bring that up as a conversation. <laughs> that feels really good. That feels good, but at the same time, it's like, God damn it, I wouldn't have taken this seriously if it didn't make any money. Well, money talks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, at least your parents are pretty proud of like what you do with this now. So yeah. So in last week's episode, yeah. I was telling the story right when I uh, played Point Blank. Yeah. No, it's a, it was point blank. I think it was the first game that I did make some money just because I participated in a tournament. Oh yeah, um, I think I remember you telling me the story. You actually won a bunch of things. Uh, Several million. Several million, but we have to divide it into our team members, right? I guess it was the first large money that I obtained from playing games. I was in the same exact situation as you were. That、uh, my parents were very much opposing, and they would always tell uh-huh, me, uh-huh. "You shouldn't play too much. You should be uh, uh-uh, spending uh-uh. more time learning." Studying for your future. Yeah, but that. Preparing for your future. But when I did, when I brought home that money, and then I told them, they suddenly just start to. I guess nag less, you know, when I play games. Yeah, Although yeah. I do have to say that my dad was still、uh, slightly against it, just because、uh, he does not think it's a it's something that is perpetual. He doesn't see it as a very promising career, and I guess he's right. I but mean, he's not wrong, though. He's, yeah. yeah, he's like, he's not wrong. The, the turnover but, rate for professional gamers is very quick. Yeah, but now if you look at the scale at which we are rewarded, if you look at Dota tournaments, it's crazy. I mean, like,、uh-huh. I I can basically live my life just just winning.、Uh, Three or four tournaments, like big scale tournaments, ones. Yeah. yeah, that's why after Point Blank, it got way better, and then it transitioned into me playing Dota, and then I also won some couple、uh-huh. hundreds of Kai. Probably around the same、uh, amount that you got from the first boom in UK. You know the hundred bucks thing. Yeah. So all these hustles that、yeah. you have accomplished and well started, do you think the biggest contributor to that is you know playing the game per se? Initially, at least, my what do you call it? Motivation was to show the world what I want. What's called what what I've created.、Mm-hmm. Like I think everyone. I'm not sure if everyone has it, but I'd say it's fairly safe to say that a lot of people have this inner desire. I suppose to be seen by society at large. At least leave your mark in a way. You know. Do you think this is、uh, this is something that people need to be born with, or do you think it's possible that complete amateur can learn over YouTube courses? Definitely the latter, because I also learned via YouTube courses and documentation.、Um, that allowed me to supercharge my progress regarding like 3D design. 2D design, on the other hand, I just made use of like 
uh, skills I learned back in high school with Photoshop. I had a lot of fun with Adobe Photoshop. <laughs> and that's, a lot of those skills are really easily transferable to the, to the gaming design. So that was fairly easy. But 3D design, oh god, it took me a long time to get around. Okay, but here's the catch. You are a biotech <laughs> scientist by trade, but you are also a game designer as a hustler. Would you ever one day consider this to be your main hustle? I don't see why not. I don't see why I wouldn't take it. Although, <laughs> although there is a caveat. It needs to give me artistic room. Like, I need to be able to control the stuff being made. I don't want to be just another wage slave who just makes stuff. Uh, who makes other people's dreams come true. I want to have a hand, you know. <laughs> I want to have like artistic freedoms in there. I was working on my own, so I had full control over what will come out. I'm used to that. I like right. that, personal. So if anyone wants me, like, wants to give me a job, I'm okay with that, as long as you give me that artistic freedom. But what about degree? Don't you think it would be a waste? Not necessarily. I see university for the most part as the experience mostly that's matters. The degree is fine and dandy. I met a lot of people, I'm still in touch with my professors. I understand scientific stuff now, you know? Like, I have the basics, I have the base for that. The point is, I don't regret the five years I spent, like, studying and stuff. If you have no regrets that you had not chosen it as your major, will you, let's say you got offered on LinkedIn, some people approach you and, hey Bill, do you want to study masters at our university and blah blah blah, would you have taken it? No, because what really matters mostly is your portfolio and what you have done and the experience you've got. Most of the schools, this is related to the industry, a lot of the schools just focus on the technical stuff instead of the artistic stuff. It prepares you very well to be, as I said before, like a lower designer who just follows someone else's artistic ideas. But okay. like, I like having my ideas put into paper as opposed to putting other people's ideas into paper. I know it sounds elitist and stuff, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, they, what they're looking for are people with the drive as well as the technical ability, not just people with technical ability. So if you could summarize your whole gaming life experience in one sentence what will you say uh this is game design or just gaming in general the whole thing from consuming the game itself to producing game uh, content it's expressive i suppose yeah it's expressive because every single game well the ones i played in a way, do express something, especially the ones that resonate with me the most. They, they're usually the heartsy sort of type of game. When I'm making stuff, uh, I would say I'm expressing that too. The point is, they're a big part of my life, and I can't really escape it. I don't. I can't imagine myself without the amount of like diffusion that video games have done into my psyche in general. Mm -hmm. So it's so expressive. It expresses to me, and I express it out myself. Alright. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Actually. A thought just uh, strikes my mind. So you were talking about how you have to create a flow for your game. I mean, for the users uh -huh. to interface while playing. But your story only covered whereby the player had a singular focus, which is to uh, pass the stage, right? Because you make it in terms of yeah, uh, yeah. game stages. But what about yeah, yeah. role-playing games where, you know, choices are very much multiple and it can alternate mm -hmm. to a number of different outcomes? In that certain scenario, how did you try to emulate those into your overall gameplay production? 
Well, I've never actually made an RPG myself, so do you think it's uh, like, I can't really answer that question myself. But do you think it's like exponentially much more difficult? Not necessarily. So I don't want to disparage the big RPGs, but I'm gonna have to be honest. A lot of the big RPGs just take shortcuts. I'm gonna take the most obvious example: Fallout 4 and Fallout New Vegas. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's a lot of like different things going on. It, the only difference it leads is to like whether or which bonus you get, as well as what slide you get in the ending. That's for Fallout New Vegas and Fallout 4. It's even more limited. It's usually limited to one question or like the game state. So you help a certain town out. Depending on how you tackle a certain quest, an entire town will turn hostile against you, or they will become super friendly to you and give you a discount. Likewise, both games have endings which essentially boil down to who do you want to support. So a lot of big games like that are just basically A B C D choices. Hmm. It makes sense because like if you created too much variables, then it's just plain impossible. Um, I completely understand. Yeah. Yes, that's my opinion as well. There is a definite limit as to how far you can go, but. There is a little game, not an RPG, but regarding choices, this is relevant. There's a little game called The Stanley Parable. I don't think you've ever heard of it. If you can, I suggest you to have a go at it. I'm not going to spoil it because it's mm-hmm. brilliant. It takes choices really well, you know? <laughs> also, the viewers, anyone who hasn't heard of The Stanley Parable, please try it. Everyone needs to play it. It's like one of the top games that I would, I would say everyone should try. Anyway. Alright, we have been covering a lot of grounds here about gaming itself and about the whole intricacies of game development. I feel really uh, jam-packed with new knowledge about the innards of a game. Thank you so much for um, sharing that knowledge and sharing your piece of life stories. Just a little bit of a final wrap-up remark. What kind of an advice would you give to people who wish to like venture around, um, you know, being a game developer like you? Is it something that's very mm. much doable and what can they expect in the long run? Well, it's actually very doable now. Like ever since 2012, 2013 or so, when uh, a few of the bigger game engines opened up for public use, like free quote-unquote license, I think it's very easy for it to go in now. But you do need to know like certain things like programming and you kinda need at least basic knowledge of how how game logic works, sort of. Also I have to add, your first attempts will suck. <laughs> well sometimes you don't, but most of the time they will suck. I know mine did. Yep, yep, yep. But yep. yeah, so point is if you do want to do it, I don't suggest you dabble around at first. If you're really into it and you have disposable income for it, it might be good to actually invest in like a course on Udemy or whatever. That might actually be a faster and more efficient method of like learning the processes than what I did, which was 10 years of looking at documents as well as YouTube tutorials on and off. Yeah, that's how I would go about it anyway. I'm, I'm in no way a professional, if I might add. So any advice I might give might actually be complete horse crap. I think you do possess some kind of a credibility knowing that you've been doing this for at least seven years. That's more than a quarter of my life, man. So I can definitely take your word for that. And I hope also the listeners have been enjoying all the information that Billion Uh, uh, has shared to us. Once again, I really appreciate your time to be on this podcast and share whatever it is that you have accrued over your whole journey. (laughs) 
You're welcome. I have to add though, and this is kind of like weird, and it's kind of a plug. Uh -huh. If you're okay with that, are you okay with a small plug? Sure. All right. So I've alluded to previously that uh, I'm working currently working on a project. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Dystopia After Civilization. We mm -hmm. have a little, I like them. a small YouTube channel. If anyone's interested, feel free to have a look at it. Take a look at Dystopia After Civilization. That's actually a very uh, good alternative because I have actually pondered on how the listeners can reach you knowing that you do not have any <laughs> uh, relevant social media for them to connect with. I am uh, a ghost. But yeah, and also to the listeners, I understand that uh, this week's talk can be a little bit of um, too, yeah, too deep into the gaming realm to which some of you may or may not bear some interest in. But I really want to bring this up because it really highlights on the fact that Billion has started this as a mere hobby but to which he later found that it can be his passion and he also mentioned it uh, explicitly that he has no problem for it to become his main um, form of activity or income generating activity. So if we can translate it a little bit back towards what we are doing with our daily life is we just have to do. Just like Billion who has been channeling and siphoning all his works into the community, finding the right kind of a platform and also people to work with have all been a very rewarding experience for him. So if I can bring the moral of the story, I guess that will be it. Overall, I have been very much entertained by your talk and I would definitely want to learn more about it although I do not wish to get too much technical because I still think it is enough for me to just consume the game, <laughs> not to produce it. <laughs> Fair enough. And that's a good moral to take away, I think. Um, your hobby doesn't just have to be like your idle time sink hobby. You could definitely grow it into something else if you want to. This is still a hobby for me too. Definitely. And it's, why not if you can? Yep. Alright, so that will be a wrap for today's um, talk with Billion. For next week, I will be going back to the Indonesian language. Talking in English has been pretty exhausting for the brain, especially that now we're conducting this interview late midnight. <laughs> Not a very good time to converse in a foreign language, but yeah. As always, I really appreciate you guys tuning in to listen and also, again, I couldn't say this enough, but thank you, Billion, for uh, for coming in and sharing us your stories. Appreciate that. You're again. welcome, partner. Alright, uh, so I will be seeing you guys in the next episode. I hope you have a good day, a good weekend, and an even better week ahead. So for now, let's say bye-bye to Billion. Bye. And also for myself. Bye-bye.